I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Coming up, we'll discuss race science, its history and how it persists to this day. Our two guests are journalist Angela Saini, who wrote the book Superior, The Return of Race Science, and Ashley Smart, editor of Undark, an online magazine from MIT's Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. The magazine produced a collection of articles on race science a few months ago. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Yesterday, as we all know, Juneteenth, National Independence Day, commemorated the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. Our show today explores the history and unfortunate persistence of race in science. We like to think of science as neutral, beyond politics, but of course it isn't. After all, science is also a product of the political landscape in which it arises. Even though several decades ago, after World War II, the United Nations, along with scientists and policymakers, declared that race has no basis in biology, scientific racism still exists. And in fact, ideas about race have hampered science as well. Our two guests today are Ashley Smart, senior editor of Undark Magazine, and he's associate director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT, which publishes the magazine, and Angela Saini, a science journalist and author of several books, including Superior, The Return of Race Science. The book tracks the troubled history and enduring legacy of race science. Ashley and Angela join us via phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts and New York City, respectively. Ashley, first with you. Welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're so welcome. And Angela, thanks for taking the time, even while touring your new book, Patriarchs. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So why don't we dive in kind of the basics and Angela, if I could have you just describe what is race science and and sort of when did it begin? How can you track it? Um, Race science is essentially this belief that the human species can be divided into discreteish groups, um, roughly along color lines. At least that's the way that we think about it now. So in the early days of scientific racism. Um, So this is around the time of the Enlightenment, when the first European philosophers and naturalists were thinking about how do we understand human difference and how do we categorize people, if that's even possible. They came up with loads of different schemes. So some people said, um, you know, there are different tribes and each of these tribes constitute a race. Um, And some people landed on skin color. Um, So these kind of very broad groups, brown, yellow, white, red, black, Um, were developed a few hundred years ago. We retained that partly because the politics of the time around slavery and colonization mapped the landscape of global uh, oppression and inequality. And that became, um, so the race science kind of became a vehicle for all of that. They borrowed from each other. um, And it became the way that people imagined human difference for a really long time. So researchers would use this kind of false way of dividing up people because skin color really doesn't tell you a huge deal about real human difference underneath. Um, but they used this 
taxonomy um, as a way of mapping human difference, even into the well into the 20th century. So basically the taxonomy based on colour and then race, so they used as a justification of white superiority and or kind of a almost inevitable lens through which the mostly white, right, scientists and politicians for that matter, ruled the world. Yeah. And it didn't have to happen this way. I mean, if the political landscape had been different, then people would have come up with different categories. And indeed, in other parts of the world, they do categorize people differently. The categories used in the U.S. are very different from the ones used, for example, in South Africa or Australia or India. The things that are salient um, in the way that people imagine human difference depend on the social and political circumstances of where you are. What's an example of that? Like how... They're used differently in the U.S. versus, say, South Africa. So in South Africa, for instance, um, there are these major categories, white, black, and colored, which is essentially not in the white or black category. And, of course, under apartheid and prior to that, um, this was incredibly important because uh, government officials would use that as a way to discuss to decide which rights you got, what access you had, which school you went to, which jobs you could have, where you could and couldn't go. So because it mattered politically, then it came to matter in the way that people imagine themselves, um, you know, how they thought about the people around them. And scientists not only fed into that scheme, they also used that scheme as a way to understand human difference. So there is still race as as bizarre as this may sound, there are still researchers around the world within biology, within anthropology, who try to study physical differences or intellectual differences between people based on these really pseudo-scientific ideas about human difference that have, you know, were invented at a particular time hundreds of years ago. Um, and they still think about, you know, are there, for example, intelligence differences between these racial groups or are there some kind of physiological things or genetic things that we can find? Um, and that's the way in which modern day race science continues. And we'll get into some of that. I know you you explore so much mm-hmm. in your book. Ashley Smart, I want to bring you in as um, not only associate director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT, for which I am very grateful myself, and um, senior editor of Undark, and who oversaw, one of the ones who oversaw this really powerful series of articles, the project called Long Division, the Persistence of Race Science. I want to ask you, what, at that point in time, sort of what inspired you and others to do this whole package and what were some of the central questions you were asking, even if they maybe have no answers? Yeah, so I I should start by pointing out that uh, one of the co-editors for that project, one of the co-visionaries, so to speak, was Angela Sainini. So Angela was also very very, uh, instrumental in, in that long division project coming together. It, it, it began, the, the project began with uh, discussions uh, between Deborah Blum, who's the director of, of KSJ, and I uh, a little over a year ago. And this was a moment when, you know, there was a lot of conversation about George Floyd and a kind of general reckoning with race going on in the United States. And we felt that one of the things that was missing from that conversation, uh, this kind of difficult conversation we we were having about race, uh, 
was the role that science had played in all of it, both in kind of establishing and kind of uh, solidifying this, this concept of race going back all the way to the 1700s, and also the way that race has kind of continued to impact the way that the science is done. Um, and as we were having these conversations, the Buffalo shooting mm. happened, um, and that kind of lended urgency to the project um, and, and lended, I think, a certain saliency to the project as well. Yeah, and without getting um, too much into the weeds about that tragic mass shooting by Peyton Gendron, um, how science and race science actually wove its way into his manifesto, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was an awful, you know, an awful tragedy. And in the wake of that tragedy, uh, it emerged that in the manifesto that the shooter had written, uh, he had cited several, more more than a dozen uh, scientific articles, more than, more than a dozen peer-reviewed articles, um, in attempting to justify his philosophy of white supremacy. And these were uh, often, you know, genetics papers and other kind of studies of uh, biology that were relatively recent. I mean, these were often papers published within the past 20 years, mm -hmm. many of them by fringe scientists who were kind of using, you know, science and as, as a way of promoting kind of racist pet theories. Uh, but it was a moment of reckoning within the science community. It was a moment where the science community kind of stopped back and, and, and asked themselves, you know what are we doing here are are we are we are we doing are we doing things that could bring about harm right uh and this was a question that uh even even scientists in mainstream research began to ask themselves after the buffalo shooting mhm mm and maybe give an example of that like among seems sort of critically were the population geneticists and how they'd been looking at categories not just sort of human migration over time right I, so i think one of one of the big issues that's kind of emerged is that uh in genetics and in population genetics as you noted um there's a lot of work being done to kind of study human variation and i think they've been one one of the positive things that they've done is to use is to move away from race uh, explicitly as a category for kind of understanding different human populations. Uh, but in the place of race, they've often adopted continental categories that are closely aligned in the public imagination with race. So whereas they, they may not define populations, uh, you know, for genetic studies uh, based on whether you know, you're black or white, they've largely abandoned the term Caucasian, uh, they often still define populations in terms of, uh, or, or classify humanity um, in terms of continents. So do you have European ancestry, African ancestry, Asian ancestry? And several people have pointed mm. out that these classifications carry with them a lot of the, the baggage and the problems that, that race has. And is some of that like psychological and obviously political baggage? I mean, I guess I'm asking to what degree can it still be useful to use continental distinctions yeah, among the categories? Because it seems sort of an important part of our story, even though, as you both point out and many others do, that beneath the skin, we're basically 
the same. And so what does skin color mean? And then broadly, like what do continents, how do they matter in terms of our, our story? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I think a lot of the, the scientists and bioethicists who are calling to move away from these categories, I think are rightly pointing out that for many of the studies in which they're being used, there's, there's, there's not a real justification for using that as kind of the default classification. Um, many scientists are doing it just because that's the way it's always been done in their field. Um, but I think there's a mm-hmm. real conversation going on about whether those categories can be useful or not. Um, I think generally they haven't been, there's no kind of rigorous science showing that they are useful for many of the questions that these scientists are asking. And I think there's a, a sincere effort to kind of, you know, look within and decide whether it's time to move on from them. Yeah, and Angela Saini, I want to ask you from your work in this really powerful book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, and the work you also did in the package for Undark and, and other work, um, to you, what, what are a couple examples that stand out historically? We could go into the 18th century or even the World War II Nazi period where racism driving science mm. is so central and has had such uh, lasting Mm. impact in a negative way? We don't actually have to go very far, um, and particularly in medicine, that we, you know, physicians still retain, and medical researchers still retain these ideas about race and use it routinely in diagnosis and treatment in ways that are often completely inappropriate and not in any kind of alignment with the way that human variation actually works. So one example, for instance, is in 2021, so this is very recently, um, the National Football League, the NFL, finally ended its practice of what is known sometimes as race correction or race norming. Hmm. So there are many instances in the medical literature of um, experts claiming that there are fundamental innate differences physiologically within between races that mean that the um, baseline by which you understand, for example, lung function or kidney function has to be adjusted depending on someone's race. The NFL used this in a really devastating way um, when it came to uh, players presenting with brain injuries suffered over the course of their career, which many, Mm. of course, American football players do because it's a very violent sport. Um, But they would say that if you were black, then your baseline cognitive function must have been lower than a white player um, before you you even experience the injury. Wow, so So kind of drawing from, if not explicitly, like the bell curve about intelligence yep, exactly. based on mm-hmm. yeah yeah so saying that every black player must have must be race normed in a different way from white players which meant of course that black players were like less likely to get compensation for those injuries they suffered in their mm-hmm. careers because their injuries would be seen differently and it was only in 2021 that the NFL physicians finally said, we are not going to use this system anymore. We're going to um, develop a new testing regime. And that coincides with a huge reckoning that's happening within the medical profession now to end the use of race norming or race correction in other areas. Kidney function, it's already Mm. happened. 
But um, a lot of my work is I, I do a lot of um, talks with doctors and in medical institutions is just asking, why do you retain race in the way that you use it? Why is it there in the literature when you know that there is no evidence to back it up? Hmm. And what about maybe another example that seemed at least implicitly or originally more benign in medical research, and that is on the topic of sickle cell anemia. I know you touched on mm-hmm. that, as you do in some of the mm-hmm. articles. Describe like what has been problematic about that, when on the outset, at least initially, it seemed to mm-hmm. at least be reaching for the greater good in diagnosing <laughs> and treating, but maybe that's a naive outlook to begin with. Well, you know, this is where it gets complicated. So a lot of people will bring up um, conditions like sickle cell or Tay-Sachs, which we know um, have a different prevalence depending on your heritage or your ancestry, your family history. Um, Now, of course, uh, part of the reason for this is because human variation is not kind of random. It's not as though if you have a child, their genetic profile will be completely different from yours or it could be completely the same. They are similar to you genetically. Mm. And historically, we have tended to live um, within communities in which we marry over generations. So there is some you know, general, not very consistent, but there's some genetic similarity between people historically within communities. And this is why we get maps of very human variation across the world in which you do see clusters. So these are statistical clusters and they and it doesn't mean that everybody within a cluster is the same genetically. It just means they are more likely to have perhaps something in common genetically. Now sickle cell is a condition that um, is an evolutionary product, if you like, of resistance to malaria. That's what it, it, the trait itself confers confers resistance to malaria. That's why it survives in human populations. You mean the same so you see trait in, that makes you predisposed to sickle cell anemia yeah. also makes you resistant also, to malaria? Yeah, also mm-hmm. gives you some resistance to malaria. And that means that you see this trait, sickle cell trait, in those parts of the world where malaria is common. So this includes parts of Africa, not all of Africa, parts of Asia, and parts of Europe. Um, but Demographically, in the U.S., because black Americans tend to be of West African heritage because of the histories of slavery, and white Americans tend to be of Western European heritage because of the history of uh, colonization, demographically, it can look as though this is a black-white condition because (laughs) just because that's an artifact of demographics and population. Globally, it is not a black-white condition. Mm. You know, you can be of any color and have sickle cell if you look globally. Um, But in the U.S., it is still prevalent enough among white Americans that um, a number of years ago, when some states uh, mooted the possibility of only screening black babies for sickle cell, um, statistically, when they looked at the likelihood of sickle cell trait appearing in a black baby versus any other baby, they found that the order of magnitude was the same. Hmm. Um, So now those states screen all babies uh, irrespective, and that's to do with numbers. That's because of population numbers. There are fewer black babies than there are babies of all other races. Mm -hmm. Um, So statistically, it makes sense to screen everybody for sickle cell. Um, And I think that's a good lesson for all of us to remember that nobody is typical 
of any racial group because these racial groups are constructed. They only really exist as artifacts, statistical artifacts. Mm. So that, you know, however much theoretical use they might offer in real practical terms, they don't really offer anything. Yeah, and maybe either of you, maybe I'll start with um, Ashley Smart. Are we seeing, are you seeing changes in the sort of viewpoint and the actual execution of funding from federal agencies on this front? You know, when you talk about sort of overall reckoning by many scientists, whether population geneticists, medical researchers, others, what about the funding? Because I know, Angela, you've said in your book that pretty recently, too, there's still been funding of really questionable if not totally fallacious, uh, science. So, Ashley, I think you covered some of that in this series, if you could address that. Yeah, and, I'll, and I know Angela uh, will, will be able to, to weigh in more deeply on the issue of funding for a lot of these fringe scientists who are, mm. who are really pushing very pseudoscientific ideas. Um, I know one thing that I've been encouraged by, I think, is that in areas of kind of mainstream research, uh, that do touch on very controversial topics. So, for instance, um, there's a fair amount of research being done um, looking at links between genetics and intelligence or between genetics and uh, educational attainment, essentially how, how far someone goes in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and some of that funding is supported by, um, you know, taxpayer dollars, uh, federal, federal agencies. But... In those communities, there has been, I think, a lot of soul-searching, um, bringing in voices, not just from the genetics community, from, but from the bioethics community and from the social sciences and from philosophy, to really talk about smart ways of, of doing this research, if they're going to continue doing it, and also kind of smart ways of deciding which research questions are really worth asking and which research questions are going to benefit humanity. Um, so I think especially in those areas, uh, you know, I've been encouraged by some of the conversations I've seen going on and also, again, uh, by, by the push to kind of move, move beyond these very coarse racial or, or continental categories um, and think in more sophisticated ways about human variation and how we study it. Yeah, and so what's an example of more sophisticated ways? You're just looking at a lot more variables or some, like, race you'd absolutely leave out? Yeah, I well, I mean, so when we think about human variation, you know, people, of course, are, are more alike than different. We're 99.9% the same genetically. Mm. Um, but there, in that 0.1%, you know, scientists believe there, are, there can be differences that are significant. Um, as Angela pointed out, those differences don't vary discreetly along racial or continental lines. Um, uh, you know, differences can vary by social class. They can vary, you know, by kind of smaller regional geographies. And I think there's a push to be kind of more careful and also more scientific in the way that mm. we, we try to explore, you know, human variation as a function of ancestry. Um, there, you know, two two people who are both of European ancestry may be more different from each other than a person from Euro- of European ancestry is from a person of African ancestry, right? And there are kind of more scientific ways of understanding that difference 
besides just lumping everyone into these three or four or five kind of very coarse continental or racial groups. Interesting. And um, Angela Saini, I think we have time just for one more, maybe um, an example of what gives you encouragement or hope, I guess, along these lines of both the scientific community mm -hmm. and funders and even policymakers sort of reckoning with the darker sides of race science. Well, as Ashley said, um, this is a very fraught area because it's not the case that human variation is random. How are you going to study mm. human difference then? Population genetics, to some degree after the Second World War, was the response um, to the race science of old. It was an attempt to do it better, to not you know, resort to the old calipers to understand the differences between people, but to look at a more molecular level. And the story of population genetics in the last 70 years has really been one of increasing understanding that we aren't as different as they imagined we might be. That even if you look at very isolated populations, uh, you know, indigenous groups in the middle of, you know, islands in, in the oceans, that even they are very closely related to neighboring groups around them. And then the question becomes, then how do you do this? How do you do this uh, level of work? Now, for me, uh, what I've been asking, perhaps a little provocatively over the last couple of years, is can we understand people just at the individual level? Mm. Can we do away with these population groupings altogether and just understand that every single person is unique? If the majority, the vast majority of human difference lies at the individual level, then why do we not do it that way. And there are some population geneticists I know who are starting to think about that. And certainly in medicine, the move towards personalized medicine is really the first step, I think, towards seeing people not in groups anymore. Well, thank you. I think we're going to have to leave it at that. Unique. And I think we will do <laughs> another it. show on that very thing. That's That'd be a perfect topic <laughs> to dive into. So I want to say you. thank you so much, Angela Saini, for coming on the show. Thank you. And thanks so much, Ashley Smart. Thank you, Susan. It was a pleasure. That was Ashley Smart, Senior Editor of Undark Magazine and Associate Director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT, and Angela Saini, a science journalist and author of several books, including Superior, The Return of Race Science. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearth.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran.